Support for the Lincoln Project podcast comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software, or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who've switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable, all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com Lincoln. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash Lincoln. Odoo, modern management made simple. Hey, everyone, before we get started, the union. Join the union.us. We need every one of you out there. Join the union.us. Join the pro-democracy army that is going to take it to the anti-democratic candidates this fall, that's going to support the pro-democracy candidates and groups that are going to help us defend this great, messy, noisy, loud American experiment. We can do it, but we can't do it without you. Join the union.us, sign up today and get involved. And now, on to the show. Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. Today, I'm joined by co-founder of The Lincoln Project, host of LPTV's The Breakdown, and author of Everything Trump Touches Dies, Rick Wilson. Rick, thanks for joining me. Hey, Reed. Glad to be back. So, Rick, we're into April now. It's hard to believe. And if you had said on January 1st that this is what the world would look like, I don't think I would have believed you. I'm not sure you would have thought that this is what the world would look like. But this is why, as Stuart likes to say, the biggest crime in American politics today is lack of imagination. You know, we could not have forecast that the world was going to, in 2015, go into the spiral we've been in ever since then. But at this point, people have no one to blame but themselves for being shocked by the way that the forces that have been unleashed in this country and the world are continuing to act upon us. And would I have predicted a war in Ukraine? No, probably not. Or a global inflationary spiral? Probably not. But I think it's important that nobody wakes up every day and says, oh, that ludicrously insane thing that I think could never, ever, ever happen, that's the worst case scenario. They should never think those thoughts. You should always have keep an eye on the on the potential apocalypse that's, that hovers out there over us these days. Well, and Rick, maybe politics throughout history has always been driven more by externalities than we would hope. But it certainly feels that way now, which is it is the, as Donald Rumsfeld would have called it, the unknown unknown that seems to have such a driver, i.e. COVID-19 two years ago or the invasion of Ukraine, you know, six weeks ago by Vladimir Putin. These things that I suppose in a science fiction novel or a Tom Clancy novel you could have imagined, but in real life seem too far-fetched to ever really consider as a possibility. Exactly. But I, I think it's important that people reframe how they think about the world around us right now, because we are in a moment where, again, those forces I was describing a little while ago that are loose in the world, just like in the late 1850s and in the early teens and in the late 1930s, those forces are happening at a scale where it's hard to see it locally, but it's easy to see it when you pull back the aperture to 30,000 feet. And I want people to keep themselves prepared for bigger shocks, in part because a lot of the forces that are out there in this world, a lot of the institutions and individuals who would love to bring on this new era of authoritarianism, 
they in part rely on shocking your sense of normality so badly that you can't respond to it. They want to paralyze you with fear and anxiety and distress by shocking you all the time, constantly throwing things at you that seem not just the externalities of a thing like COVID or the war, but a constant sense of outrage and depression and fear. They rely on that very deeply. And it's a fear that can only exist within the fictional world that the radical media creates for its viewers. We are in an era where this separate media bubble that the right in this country particularly, and you know, more globally as well, exists in. They believe in a whole catalog of these imaginary issues and these imaginary demons that define their political life, that define their emotional space. And if you were to ask a Republican voter right now what the most important issue in America is, there is a really good chance they're going to say Hunter Biden's laptop because that's what they're told every day on Fox and every day on talk radio and every day when Danny Bingo goes on his Fox you know, streaming channel and every day they read Breitbart and Gateway Pundit and the rest of the you know, mutant parade of weirdo far-right blogs. Every day they see those things, and they're told that's what's important. That's the only thing that's out there. And a little tough love for our Democratic friends right now. Don't keep chasing the rabbit. They would love for you to go into this election talking about Hunter's laptop and gun control and abortion when the things that matter to Americans right now, and the administration, by the way, I think are starting to get the picture here more clearly maybe than some elected Democrats, is the inflation bump from a global conflict and from a global inflationary moment, not just it's not Biden's fault that it happened, it just it's happening globally. If you don't address that with voters, they're going to be angry. When they go to the grocery store right now and they're paying $12 for a pound of bacon or $7 or $8 for a dozen eggs, that's a world that's affecting their pocketbook, their daily lives, etc. So, you know, Democrats, I think, would be very, very well advised to start looking at ways to crack down on the things they can do, the driving issues they can do to mitigate some of this legitimate concern over inflation. And I think the first thing I would do is to tell them, you got to suspend the gas tax for six months or a year. And I know there are cross pressures from the enviros on that. I get it. But it would immediately have a deflationary effect throughout the economy, and it would be a smart play. I hope they think about doing that. I think this is the other part, too, Rick, which is somebody, I don't know who it was, said politics is the art of the possible, one, which is, to my point about externalities, the world does not unfold as you would like it. You can say, these are the things I want to get done, and then reality intercedes and you have to contend with that, i.e. Ukraine, i.e. inflation. Some of these things are tied together with one another, but I will say that I saw something just before we started recording that said 70% of Americans in a recent survey blamed either Vladimir Putin or oil companies for the gas prices. But Democrats need to be able to weaponize that politically and say, does it surprise you that the people who are the biggest fans of Vladimir Putin and enjoy the most largesse from oil companies are the ones who have very little to say about it and are blaming Joe Biden because they know it's on them? It should not escape anyone's attention that that's how that part of the world views this. And again, I want to say this very clearly. There are some Republicans who are strongly against Vladimir Putin's invasion of Ukraine. There are others who would be fine with it if he was getting away with it. And there are others who are still playing a wait-and-see game. They're playing the Trump playbook, right? 
Exactly. All of them will deny that they have a real feeling about anything that isn't poll tested until it becomes an obvious political liability to them. And so that idea that you're going to have these people who are going to say, let's do something mutually to defend Ukraine or mutually to defend this country against the economic impact of inflation, good luck. They're going to try to convert all these things into attacks on Joe Biden and the Democrats as we go forward into the year. And so, I mean, I think the other part, too, is that, you know, one thing that we hear a lot from our Democratic friends is that they have a pretty healthy concern of the progressive wing for two reasons. One, because they don't agree with it. And two, because they feel like it pulls the party too far to the left. From people that are like us, you know, vestigial Republicans, they say, I want nothing to do with my own party, but what they believe in scares me. So it's very hard for me to come across the line there. And what I would say is that, you know, perception is reality in this case, Rick, which is even if you own a majority of the voters and a majority of the quote party, whatever it looks like, if you allow the progressives to dominate the discussion and pressure you into positions that you know are largely unhelpful, then that is the party. Yes, it is the party. Because if you can't maneuver because of one faction in your party, that's your party. Republicans can't maneuver because of Trump. I mean, look, Liz Cheney and, and Adam Kinzinger and two or three other quiet types in the House and Senate who oppose Trumpism and authoritarianism, they may be Republicans, but they're bound by the rest of their party and by the wing of that party that dominates. The Democrats are bound by the progressives out of fear right now because they have this thing in their head that turnout will go down if we don't feed them everything they want. I'm going to have some very tough love for my Democratic friends right now. Today, Biden went out to work on gun control. And I know Democrats love gun control. They love it so much. They think it's the most important issue. No one in this country votes on gun control except for Republicans. What you did was handed them another issue where they can scream and shout and demagogue it into the sky saying, oh my God, they're taking your guns. Here they come. They're doing this. They're doing this. And they did it for no reason. They didn't have to do it. Look, when you look at the most important problem panels, gun control is less than 1%. No one cares about it as an issue except activists. And to my Democrats who are listening, God love you, but you're misreading the states that you have to win in this year. Because in rural Pennsylvania, a rural Pennsylvania Democrat sees this gun control stuff, and they're like, no thanks. Florida, North Carolina, Arizona, a lot of rural Democrats in those states are gun owners. And they don't hear it as common sense gun control or gun reform. They hear it in the same way Republicans in those states hear it. I say this not because the policy per se, but because of the politics of it. And I, as a Republican, we used to steal those voters from Democrats by scaring the crap out of them over their gun rights. Well, the difference, I think, between the two parties right now, Rick, is that there is the progressive side, which is not the majority of the Democratic Party. And the French crazy side is the majority of the Republican Party right now. Yeah, there's nothing about today's Republican Party that allows any variance of opinion. And while the Democrats have to manage the progressive side of their, of their party, given the way that politics are not homogenous in this country, the Republicans are trapped completely inside Trump world, trapped completely inside of a box that does not allow them to escape politically from Trump at any point. You know, to quote the political philosopher Rorschach in the movie Watchmen, Trump isn't trapped in there with the Republican Party. The Republican Party is trapped in there with Trump. I mean, he has redefined the party so thoroughly that they can't escape. 
look at Kemp in Georgia this weekend. He says, I'm not a dictator, which is a line you would normally think voters would applaud. And they were basically, you know, about to throw tomatoes at the guy. Republicans were furious about it. They're furious when they don't get executive orders or these fait accompli style decisions in the states that go their way every single time. Let's switch gears to the Republicans, because to your point about Brian Kemp, and this brings up an interesting dilemma, and I'll zoom out a little bit to the Trump endorsement strategy, such as it is, and everybody's trying to divine what it is, and I don't think there is one, which I think is always the first mistake of trying to assume that he knows what he's doing and why he's doing it. So in Georgia, Rick, he has endorsed David Perdue, who lost the Senate race early last year, has gone full Trump against Brian Kemp, who, among other things, Trump blames for costing him the state of Georgia in 2020. It looks like Kemp is going to win that primary. So where do MAGA voters go when you have Brian Kemp traitor du jour against Stacey Abrams, who otherwise would drive, you know, rural white voter turnout in Georgia pretty high. But now what are the MAGA folks going to do? Because Trump will either say nothing, he'll say that Kemp stole it, or he'll say, don't vote for that guy. And I think it's an illustration that just like his voters, Trump is not a Republican. He's not a conservative. He's an anti-liberal. He doesn't care who the governor of Georgia is, just so long as it's not Brian Kemp. Right. As long as Trump gets to have his little revenge fantasy against Kemp, he's happy. He doesn't care if it's a Democrat. He wants to make sure that Kemp gets slammed. So, you know, he won't come out and endorse Stacey Abrams, of course, but he will tell his voters a whole lot of nothing. He'll stay away. They'll get the message through all the normal Trumpian channels. And that's what happened, among other things, you know, happened in January of last year during those Senate runoffs as he had Roger Stone running through the countryside saying, Purdue and what's-her-name aren't really Trumpy. They're McConnell people. They're McConnell people. And just enough Republicans didn't show up, right? You run that race, Rick, a hundred times, you get the result. We got five, maybe. And so I think we shouldn't underestimate the ability of Republicans and Trump in particular to harm himself and those around him, not surprisingly. But then also in Pennsylvania, Trump just endorsed Dr. Oz. Dr. Oz is like him. He's a TV charlatan over a guy like David McCormick, former hedge fund gajillionaire who is like a Glenn Youngkin, can put on the barn jacket or put on the vest, who basically sold his soul to Stephen Miller and Hope Hicks to try and get Trump's endorsement, went down and bent the knee, was down there, had gone begging last week. And now you've got a guy who was like, and I was talking to somebody who knew McCormick or somebody who knew somebody who knew McCormick on Wall Street said, this is not who this guy is. Like the Bible verses, MAGA, like they're like, this isn't who this guy is. And so now you've got a guy staring down the barrel of losing to Dr. Oz. Now he might win, right? Because it's going to be a bloodbath as far as television is concerned. So now you could have a situation, Rick, where, you know, from our political estimation, if John Fetterman, the lieutenant governor of Pennsylvania, is the Senate nominee there where he's been leading against Oz, you could have John Fetterman in the United States Senate, not easily, but realistically, whereas against a McCormick, if he pulled the Yunkin, if he tried to pull the Yunkin, would be a much more formidable matchup, I think. Yeah, I think there's a meaningful possibility that, you know, David McCormick, who is a Mitch McConnell guy, he's a Bush kind of guy. You know, to be honest, folks, 10 years ago, David McCormick would have been our kind of guy. The funny part is, you know, just like Glenn Youngkin, he's trying to play a role. 
in red counties in red parts of the state, up in the T, the guy is as foaming at the mouth magatastic as you can get. And in suburbs around Philly and in Bucks County, you know, he's Glenn Young in the sweater vest and the barn jacket. And he's, you know, I'm just a moderate, I'm just a nice suburban dad. From Connecticut. <laughs> From Connecticut, right. Who, who lived in Connecticut until last year. So did Oz. He lived, or Oz lived in New Jersey until like five minutes ago. But in both of their cases, voters looking for authenticity are not going to really find it in David McCormick because if the Trump voters look at the guy for more than 30 seconds, they're going to realize who and what he is. And I think we're in a situation in Pennsylvania and other states where this MAGA purity test has become the main test of the Republican Party. If you're a Republican now, you must pass that test. And look, Youngkin faked it very effectively. And I think the media coming out of Virginia looked at the race a little bit more closely when they were done with it and said, we got bullshitted. We got played. And they did. And folks, you should know that the guy running David McCormick, Jeff Rowe, is the same guy who ran Glenn Youngkin and the same guy who runs Ted Cruz bad guy, but he's not stupid about this. And he's going to tell McCormick, spend your money, spend your money, spend your money, and we can maybe pull something together here. Well, but then you add on what Rick Scott has been doing to his own party, Rick, which is putting out a thing that says, I want to raise taxes on half the country. And I wrote my plan in such a way that my opponents, if they're listening, are saying that I want to sunset Social Security and Medicare. Which is exactly what he wrote, folks. Right. And in Ohio, Gibbons, I think is his name, Mike Gibbons, one of the leading candidates in the Republican Senate race there, got behind that. I only assume because Scott was looking for somebody to do it and said, like, if you don't do this for me, like, good luck getting any money coming to your way. Doesn't Ohio feel like a weird race to the bottom? It does. It's so striking to me how completely bonkers every Republican candidate in that race is. And I think Mike Gibbons is having a little bit of a moment because Timken was the favorite of McConnell world for a while, and Gibbons is the favorite of Scott world. So I think it's a very interesting spot right now. And Josh Mandel and J.D. Vance, neither one of them want to be Rick Scott's guy or Mitch McConnell's guy. But we've been saying that there was a good chance, and this goes back to the memo that Joe Trippi wrote back in January, was don't underestimate the ability of the Republican Party to nominate some true wackos. And we're going to see that in a lot of places, whether or not it's Arizona, Nevada, Ohio. And then we've got the just the particularly bad guys like Ron DeSantis there in your hometown or Greg Abbott. It's fertile ground for reminding Americans like, you know, you may not like the Democrats, but these are truly bad people. These are dangerous people. And, and, and I want to say, want to throw one thing on people's radar screens. It's a story breaking this afternoon while we're recording this podcast on Monday, in Florida, the state legislature, which in the Florida Constitution, the state legislature is quite powerful. They have abrogated their responsibility now to draw a congressional map. And so they have said, we will accept whatever congressional map Ron DeSantis would like to give us. And Ron DeSantis has already proposed one congressional map. And folks, I know you're going to be shocked to hear this. It's going to be a, a, real, a real shock, a real stunner. His first congressional map erased three African-American congressional seats in Florida. This has been a, a year where voting rights have been set back over and over and over again in states with Republican control. But I haven't seen in any other state the Republican Party completely say, we don't have our own independent action anymore. We work for this guy. We work for Ron DeSantis. We work for the Republican governor only. 
we are vassals to our Lord. It's really striking to me. Well, and remember that in 2020, the Republican National Committee did that with Trump. Remember when they said whatever Trump believes is what our party platform is. So this is not unusual for them. It is unusual that a I mean, that's the thing, Rick. I mean, it used to be that that all these legislatures, whether or not they were at the state level or Congress, considered themselves to be co-equal branches and took that belief very seriously. You know, whether or not you were the same party or not, like, hey, you don't come here and tell me what to do. Right. Correct. And I think that that is something that is so important to understand. What's playing out in Florida is kind of what played out in Congress. And look, under W, Republicans were like, yeah, we need more executive orders. And he was very hesitant about them. Under Obama, they were stuck with a Republican Congress, so they used executive orders, even though they were warned, hey, this could get crazy down the line, but they did it. And so then Trump just picked up the ball and ran with the executive order thing. And so this idea that you're going to accomplish with the all-powerful executive all your ideological dreams, I think it is just so dangerous for this country, Reed. It should frighten the hell out of people. Well, it should. And, you know, also we've seen throughout history what happens when legislative bodies become rubber stamps for the executive. The only thing we're missing now is a big fat guy sitting in the speaker's chair with a silly uniform on. I think it's very important to realize, even if the Democrats have a good year, even if things really, really alter in terms of the delay of the land, this is still going to be a closely divided House of Representatives if they have a good year. You know, that's why I keep encouraging the Democrats. You've got to get on offense on issues that right now you're sort of laying back on. And you've got to stop fighting the culture war because that is where they want you. That's where they want you to fight it. They would love this election to be about trans and abortion and gun control because that is their happy place. This is something I said too, Rick, which is watching the now Justice Jackson hearings was that you could tell that Hawley and Cruz and Lindsey Graham were relieved because they had been contending with Ukraine for a month. And this let them get back onto familiar and comfortable ground of racism. That's where they're comfortable now, Rick. Like, that's their happy place. All right. I want to get to Jared and Ivanka. But before I do that, I have to ask a question. Of the 74 million people that voted for Trump in 2020, Rick, how many of them are the true believers, the America first MAGA nihilist anarchist set? I divide it this way right now, Reed. I think that we used to talk about the Bannon line of three to eight percent of voters. I believe that number has actually expanded in the last year. And I put it in my back of the envelope map between seven and 12 percent now. And those people have been repulsed by things like the voting restrictions, abortion restrictions, because there are still pro-choice Republicans folks out there in the suburbs. And a lot of the ugliness of the you know things like don't say gay and the constant anti-LGBT drumbeat. So I think that number's expanded a bit. So that's 7 to 11 percent. Park those over in the reachable column. I think there is a 35 percent core of the Republican Party that are activists, pro-Trump. That includes the white nationalists. That includes the crazies. That includes the people that want to burn it down, the Bannonites. That includes the media industrial complex. And I think there's a big squishy bit in the middle that are behavioral Republicans. They don't engage on politics heavily. They are generally speaking conservative. They're not out of the mainstream of the country. A lot of those Republican voters in that squishy middle are not out of the mainstream of where the country is. It's a big country, folks. And we have two very liberal coasts, a few blue islands here and there throughout. 
But if there was an option in this country right now for a non-Trumpy center-right party that was serious and could win races and could win a presidency, you'd have the largest political party in the country in a couple of years. This country is largely center-right and center-left. And, you know, a, a Democrat in rural Ohio is more conservative than a Republican in Vermont. And it's my constant drumbeat. This country is not ideologically homogenous. It is very, very diverse. All right. Jared Kushner was basically given $2 billion by Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, in a report out by the New York Times recently, even after the managers of their sovereign wealth fund said, this isn't a good idea, which means that MBS said, wire the money. I guess I don't even know what to say, Rick, other than letting these people back in power. This is what you see, right? The idea of a former senior advisor to a president taking a $2 billion loan, for lack of a better way to put it, from a Saudi crown prince is a bad idea on almost every level. And we should not think, one, that Kushner will ever stop, and two, that if somehow they were able to get back to the White House, that the whole thing, every last faucet and doorknob in the place wouldn't be for sale. Look, Jared Kushner and everybody freaking out about this story, they're missing the fact this isn't the first time that a Gulf sovereign wealth fund came in and bailed out Jared's ass. Let's remember, they were about to lose 666 Park Avenue because Jared's family business was going absolutely belly up. The building had cost them some extraordinary amount of money. They had notes coming due. And somehow or another, a brand new investment fund swooped in and bought the building from underneath them. You know, this is not the first time they've been bought and paid for. Now, with the Saudis, Jared's plan with MBS from every element of it, when MBS was seizing power in what was essentially a family coup, Jared was, quote, on the phone with him all night long. They bonded because they're both sort of the same generation. And then after MBS ordered the assassination of Jamal Khashoggi and his decapitation by Saudi security agents, when he was lured to an embassy and murdered on MBS's orders, Jared knew. Jared was the guy who handled it. Jared was the person who told the State Department back down. Jared was the one who protected MBS. And then a few weeks ago, we picked up that Jared was on the phone to his buddy MBS again, saying, hey, don't pump too much oil right now. We wouldn't want to have Biden have low gas prices. We don't want the world supply to like help Biden politically. And now we have this story. So Jared, somebody today called him a vampire mannequin, which I thought was fantastic. <laughs> but Jared, the vampire mannequin, you know, it's all for you, Jared. He's the Damien of Trump world, and he is getting what he wants. He sold access and power to MBS and the Saudis. He sold it to them. When the Saudi Arabians were having a fight with Qatar, Jared sided with Saudi Arabia and forced the State Department to side, even though Qatar has been a loyal ally of ours and houses the largest American military presence in the Gulf, because Jared wanted what he got, $2 billion payday. And if you think that the Saudi Sovereign Wealth Fund operates on anything other than what MBS says, if he told them tomorrow, hey, we're going to pull out of all the financial markets and we're going to invest in Bitcoin, they'd be invested in Bitcoin. Exactly. But this is, you know, whether or not it's the Saudis, the Emiratis, the Russians, the dirtier the money, Rick, the more they seem to like it. And they view this 
read as their divine right. They view this as what they deserve. They want this money because they're unbelievably selfish, but they also want it because they think they deserve it. And that to me is something I think people just haven't fully internalized yet about just how completely corrupt their idea of who they are really is. And as I said on Twitter earlier this week, Rick, imagine him being back in charge and every Republican in the country being answerable to Donald Trump and Jared Kushner. They would demand everything of these guys. Now, they did it before and they've got mostly what they wanted, you know, until post-election 2020. This time around, God knows what the last four. Well, and that's true. We, we, I mean, we had an ad one time in 2020 where we called Jared like the secretary of everything. And he had failed over and over and over again, but he had that power. You know, Donald Trump sees his daughter as the one Trump child he's proud of, and Jared is her consort. And so he gave Jared extraordinary powers in the White House, even though, by the way, so let's, let's recall, Jared Kushner couldn't pass the basic SF-86 security clearance. You and I both filled that thing out, Reed. And somehow you and I both passed it, even though we're goddamn hoodlums. But Jared Kushner couldn't get a security clearance. Right. And finally, Trump had to say, give it to him. Right. He just executive ordered it into existence. So I think the whole position we find ourselves in with Jared and with Donald right now is if Trump is reelected, these people will recognize that they have been not punished for the behavior they engaged in and exhibited over the past six years, and in fact, rewarded for it. And so once you reward a criminal or a thief or a scumbag for doing something criminal or stealing or being a scumbag, they'll do more of it. You will always get more of what you pay for in this world. So let's talk about that. So we believe that Trump will run again, probably starting in 2023, but for the 2024 general election. But lurking down there, just down the street from you, is a guy named Ron DeSantis of Florida fame, who is sitting on something like $100 million in his campaign account, Rick, for his reelection this year. That is a massive war chest by any imagination for a state race. I mean, in 2006 in California, we raised and spent about $80 million for Schwarzenegger. And at that time, that was an outrageous number. And that was, what, 15, 16 years ago. So this is a guy who is showing his fundraising prowess. I think you mentioned when we were talking something like 110,000 individual contributors. That number will grow, if not geometrically, exponentially as he starts to advertise. It won't surprise me if he starts to advertise with state campaign funds in places like Iowa, New Hampshire and South Carolina. And I think he's seeing Trump is gettable. I think he thinks he can take the guy on and go head to head with him. I can tell you this, Reid. If Donald Trump and his people doesn't pay attention to the endless parade of Republican consultants who are marching down to Tallahassee to try to get an audience with Ron DeSantis, including people near Trump who are all hedging their bets, Donald Trump thinks he can take Ron DeSantis out. You know, I'm increasingly thinking that DeSantis has played Trump really effectively. He still kisses his ass enough and says, oh, no, I won't run if you run, sir. But I don't believe it. I don't believe it. And there are a lot of national Republican consultants coming down here to see the most powerful person around DeSantis, who is Christina Pushaw. She is the most powerful person around him, including more powerful than Casey DeSantis, his wife, and more powerful than Phil Cox, his general consultant. You know, they're coming down here to kiss the asses of his team and try to get meetings with Ron. And they're going to keep doing that 
as long as Trump hasn't overtly declared, if you do this, you will never work for Trump world again. But you and I both know that a lot of our former colleagues are not exactly deeply committed to campaign ethics. So they're going to be, they're going to be coming down here and they're going to be working this thing as much as they can to position themselves for what they perceive as a campaign juggernaut that if Trump gets hit by a car, they're already picking out curtains in the White House. Rick, on the money front, you know, this is something I find interesting, which is I believe that they have already made the decision in Tallahassee or wherever the campaign headquarters is, is that they're going to raise as much money as they can. Stuart noted when we were having a conversation about this, that they will spend as little of it as they can to get him across the line in 2022, but that they will then start taking that money, which is not federally qualified for a presidential race, and they'll just start spending it everywhere because to them, what's the sanction? A fine from the Florida Ethics Commission? I mean, they'll do it because nobody's going to tell them they can't. There are FEC investigations that from the early 2000s that are still underway. And the Florida Ethics Commission is the most toothless body possible. And I kid you not, Reed, their maximum fine ever was like $270,000. Ron DeSantis could get a 100 of those and not give a shit. It'd be cost of doing business. And what's going to happen if he doesn't pay them? Nothing. Oh, the legislature is going to sanction him? I doubt it. The Ethics Commission, which I assume he appoints the head of, is going to say, Governor, Governor, the point is, is that there are no scruples in these people. And to your point, bad behavior begets bad behavior. They've seen Trump. They've seen what he's done and they've seen him get away with it. And so therefore they're like, well, you know, what's the worst that could happen? I also think that there's going to be a point where even Ron DeSantis starts to collide with reality because Donald Trump, when he went up to New Hampshire, was a celebrity. He was a not just a political celebrity. He was a real celebrity in whatever crapulous reality TV show way you want to describe it. Ron DeSantis is still going to have to go sit down in the Merrimack Hotel in the bar and kiss ass of some local county yokel vice chairman of the Republican Party. He's still going to have to go to Iowa and stand around and eat fried shit with the Christian Coalition's field director to kiss ass in Iowa. This is not a guy who kisses ass well. He doesn't make friends. He doesn't have or make friends. He is a very cold individual. His personal affect, according to major donors, and by the way, a lot of them have written him checks because they live in Palm Beach or they want to stay, you know, keep their businesses in Florida. They say, like, he's creepy. He's weird. He doesn't look you in the eye. He's strange. What's wrong with him? And this is not a guy who takes that kind of thing lightly. But he won't, in my mind, really be tested until two big things happen. One, Trump makes a decision. And if Trump makes a decision, as much as Fox News right now loves Ron DeSantis, if Trump makes a decision to get in the race, I predict DeSantis will suddenly receive scrutiny like he's never had before. And if Trump doesn't get in the race, this is still going to be a big scrap with a lot of different people fighting a lot of different axes of the battle. He's a bad dude. He's doing as much as he can to hurt folks. But I do think it's going to change the ball game when he starts to collide with reality. Well, and before we get to our last topic of the day, Ron DeSantis may think he's an asshole. Ron DeSantis has not yet met the individual New Hampshire primary voter <laughs> who is as flinty and distemperate as they can come. Oh, and you know what? You go to that some bitch's door 
and you think you're going to have the 30 second handshake selfie. And that guy goes, I want to talk to you about the gold standard. (laughs) And you get pinned down with a curmudgeon for like an hour. It is a soul sucking, grinding experience. And the analogy there that I would point out, Rudy Giuliani in 2008, remember in the beginning of 2008, he was absolutely going to be the guy. America's mayor, 9-11, all the stuff. Well, Rudy went up to New Hampshire and, you know, he traveled around with a big security detail and, you know, he was like the big swinging dick and those folks knocked his ass to the ground. And it's because there's a tradition there of they're a tiny state with little consequence other than the early part of the election cycle. And they want to make sure that when they've got those candidates there, they just humiliate the shit out of them. And I don't know that Ron's going to react very well to that. Well, that's part one of 2024 Parlor Games. We'll come back to it. So, <laughs> Rick, b- before yeah. I let you go, there's a story, out of the, again, out of the Times this past Sunday about the fact that there is a split within the membership of the House Select Committee on January 6th about whether or not to include a criminal referral to DOJ as part of their final report vis-a-vis Donald Trump because they think it would look, quote, too partisan. You and I have been going around and around about this since October of last year. October of last year. Remember when Omicron was a thing, months before Putin invaded Ukraine. They have had interviews, they have gotten documents, and now here we are, Televised primetime hearings were supposed to have begun beginning of this month. And now we're back to where we started, Rick, which is hand wringing. I don't know if we'll look too partisan. And it's my opinion that if you try and avoid the thing you don't want, it's what you'll get. That's right. Already they're being played. The people on the commission, not only Republicans, but some of the Democrats. And I described this. In October of last year, when I got in a fight with the committee, and they said, oh, how dare you say this? Even though I had two sources inside the committee, they are terrified, and they're being worked by the Republicans. I guarantee you Kevin McCarthy's calling Zoe Lofgren or Benny and saying, hey, listen, man, you know, you know, I know you got to do this, but, you know, it's really going to, we'll never be able to get anything done if you guys keep this up. And, you know, we want to work with you. I got to keep these Trumpers under control. And, you know, if you'll just help me a little bit, I can. And it's all crap. It's all crap. They're being worked by the Republicans. They're being worked by their own lack of confidence. You know, our friend Kurt Bardella, when he was on the Oversight Committee, we've talked about this a ton of times. The Republicans were absolutely bloodthirsty. They never stopped. They kept the spectacle going all the time. They made it hurt every single day, every time they could. They just absolutely tortured the living shit out of Hillary Clinton and the Democrats. And if the Democrats don't do this now, they're going to find themselves in a deep, deep hole. And this is, I think, the same thing that my complaint probably with DOJ and and the attorney general is this idea that somehow, to your point, that we still live in the before times, that you're either unwilling or unable to see the world we live in now, and there will be consequences from that. I mean, the idea, Rick, that we have not heard of Jenny Thomas being subpoenaed by the January 6th committee because she happens to be the spouse of a Supreme Court justice, all the more reason why she should be subpoenaed. You don't get immunity because your husband is one of the nine most powerful people in the country when it comes to making laws and interpreting the Constitution. 
Correct. And look, nothing they do will escape being called a partisan witch hunt by the Republicans. If they didn't interview anyone and just requested documents, they'd be called partisan witch hunters. There is nothing more important in this political process right now than putting one six front and center and getting the work done. And if they don't, why bother? And let me just say this. I mean, being an amateur student of history, we have seen that when there is one party that is authoritarian in nature and on the march, it is almost invariably the other party that allows this to occur because they choose not to fight back because, to your point, Rick, they are unwilling or unable to believe what is happening before them and unwilling and unable to say not one more step back. Right. That loops around to right where we started in this whole conversation today. They can't imagine the worst case. The failure of imagination is what paralyzes them and, and leads them into greater danger. And that's the thing, too, Rick, is that, you know, back to the political side of this and the Democrats, this is what their voters want. They want these people held to account. They are ready for the fight. When I go, when you go, when we talk to people, when we go see people, they want the fight. They're ready for it. And they're waiting for their leaders to lead them. And I think aside from President Biden, I think that's what you're seeing is that a lot of folks are unwilling to lead because it means you have to take a risk. You have to take responsibility and it might not work out anyway. And if that's how you feel about being a public servant, then retire. Take your government pension after 23 terms in the House and call it a day. Call it a career. If you're going to be there, for God's sake, do something because this shit matters. All right. So, Rick, before we let you get out of here, where can everybody find you on social media? I am on social media at the Twitter machine at the Rick Wilson. Same thing on Instagram, but not really on Instagram that much. Twitter is my main platform, and uh, that's where you can find me. And as always, everybody, you can find me on Twitter at Reed Galen. You can find me on Instagram, again, not that often, Reed underscore Galen underscore LP. Rick, as always, thanks for joining me. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to follow and subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter at Project Lincoln. And for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list, subscribe to our newsletter, or make a contribution to our efforts, visit lincolnproject.us. Also, be sure to check out our LPTV lineup, including The Breakdown with Tara Setmayer and Rick Wilson, which airs Tuesdays and Thursdays at 8 p.m. Eastern, as well as We're Speaking with Lisa Senecal and Maya May, which airs Wednesday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern. All shows you can stream live on the Lincoln Project's YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter pages. And we'd love you to join us for our newest show, Lunch with Lincoln, which airs every Friday at noon Eastern on our YouTube channel. For the Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. See you on the next episode.